Is anyone else intentionally limiting your exposure to the news of the world these days? I see a headline, so I turn aside to look. But I can only read so many stories and see so many graphic photos. Then I feel sick to my stomach and I have to turn away. I am unable to help the Ukrainian people. I want a sign that things are going to get better. Why won't God send us a burning bush? Or better yet, send a burning bush to Ukraine and raise up a liberator, someone who will shout, let my people go. Well, President Zelensky is certainly shouting that, but the pharaoh in Russia has a very hard heart. Isn't it God's job to judge the world? Why isn't God fixing this? And not just the war in Ukraine. Why won't God just take away COVID-19, which is far deadlier than any war, still killing thousands of people every single day? The people of Galilee shared the same sorts of anxieties that we do. Today, we hear them asking Jesus, did you see the headline? Did you read the story? Some of our neighbors made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate's soldiers came and slaughtered them right there in the temple, and their blood mingled with the blood of the animals they had offered to God. The Romans have no soul. Jesus shakes his head. Well, what do you expect me to say? It's horrible. And I know you have questions. God is just, yet God allowed this to happen. So Pilate's murder of these Galileans must somehow be justified, right? But stop. Do you really believe this? Do you think that God was punishing these Galileans by arranging for the Romans to kill them? Nonsense. God didn't choose that course of action. Pontius Pilate did. Their deaths are on him. Also above the fold this morning, you probably read about that construction accident by the Siloam Pool. Eighteen people were crushed when a tower fell on them. But that was an accident. It had nothing to do with the morality of the people who died. In a roundabout way, then, Jesus speaks to us today about both Ukraine and COVID-19. He addresses violence that humans choose to carry out, and he also addresses violence that happens for no apparent reason. Jesus answers the Galileans in the same way he might answer us today. These things aren't justified. Nevertheless, they happened because God allows the world to work like that. As mortals with a divine origin, we come preloaded with a strong sense of justice. There should be an explanation for these horrible events. When there is none, we're driven to find one anyway. So strong is this desire that the Bible is full of theological attempts to help us feel better about other people's misfortune. Paul speaking after Jesus, but probably without specific knowledge of today's gospel reading, Paul has no problem blaming the victims. He stands right in line with most of the Torah. 
Today's passage from a letter to the Corinthians is all about consequences for idolatry, placing anything or anyone above God. Writing poetically, Paul reads Christian sacraments back into the story of Israel. The Israelites were baptized, he suggests, when they went through the waters of the Red Sea to freedom. And when God provided manna from heaven, this was their holy Eucharist. In response to the people's discontent, Moses struck a rock with his staff and brought water from it. That rock, Paul says, was Christ. Paul is using the poetry of his tradition to teach a continuity between Judaism and Christianity. From there, though, Paul goes on to relate the idolatry of Israel. Why did 23,000 Israelites die suddenly in the book of Numbers? Because they slept with Moabite women, foreigners who worshipped other gods. Why were the Israelites attacked by serpents in the wilderness? Because they accused God of wishing them harm instead of good. God punished them, but eventually God allowed those who remained to enter the promised land. Paul tells the Corinthians that God does indeed punish us, but that the accrued history of such punishments serves as a warning to us to live our lives differently. You know what? I don't like Paul's logic. I think it's nonsense. I know it's not new coming from him. I know it's deeply embedded in the Bible, and you can quote all sorts of passages to demonstrate that Paul is right. Should we avoid doing bad things? Obviously. But I don't buy that God slaughters thousands of people because they're not xenophobic enough or because they're hungry and discontented. And I don't buy that God threatens us with the same treatment if we don't shape up. In short, I think Paul is incorrect. See, here's the thing. The Bible is not a single watertight theological argument. It is a conversation spanning thousands of years. Although we don't add new books to the Bible, we continue the conversation in our own day. And this isn't a Jewish versus Christian thing. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that it makes no sense for God to punish children for the sins of their parents, and that even though this idea is in the Bible, we should stop believing it. The book of Job is all about the futility of trying to blame victims for the misfortunes that God doesn't prevent. Jesus stands in line with both Jeremiah and Job. He freely disagrees with many widely accepted interpretations of Scripture. That doesn't make him any less Jewish. If anything, it makes him more so. Jesus interrogates the Bible honestly. And yes, people can be unfruitful or evil. Yes, even God's fallen creation can victimize us, and we simply don't deserve this supposed punishment. But what can we do about it? Jesus advises, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. What? Repent of what? 
I thought the whole point was that these victims are innocent. Why should the people have to repent when the Romans are slaughtering them? Why should they have to repent in the face of accidental tragedies? Why should we? COVID-19 is nobody's fault. And all the deaths in Ukraine, the deaths of thousands of Ukrainian innocents and thousands of Russian soldiers are Vladimir Putin's fault. Why isn't God punishing him? But that's not Jesus' point. He's trying to shift our focus away from blame. Stop dwelling on what you can't fix, he says. Everyone is going to die in one way or another. And that means everyone is dependent on God to get us through that. What are you doing to increase your trust in God? As much as we like to think we have control over our lives, most of that is a temporary illusion. But we can always choose a posture of humility. We are all in the wrong sometimes. And we have the power to admit when we are wrong and turn around. Repentance won't get us out of disaster, but it will help us face it. It will help us quit demanding a world other than what God has given us. And here's where we find Jesus and Paul to be in agreement. Paul writes, if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. If we can avoid swaggering over confidence, we're in far better shape than we might be otherwise. So while I can claim that I think Paul is wrong, I still don't get to throw this passage out of the Bible. And so we come to a little parable of a fig tree and of a conversation between the owner and the gardener. Jesus' listeners know their Bible, and they may want to quote to him the same stories Paul just referred to. But by telling this story of the owner of a vineyard, Jesus gets the people to remember Isaiah chapter 5, in which a man plants a vineyard and tends it well. He is shocked then to find that it doesn't yield the kind of grapes he planted, but some wild, nasty-tasting fruit. In anger, the man stops tending the vineyard and abandons it, allowing nature to overrun it. Jesus gives a new twist to an old story. A man plants a fig tree. Wait, figs aren't grapes. Why a fig tree? Because figs are delightful. They are nature's candy, even sweeter than grapes. But no figs emerge. The tree isn't doing its job. Naturally, the owner judges that he should uproot the tree so the soil isn't wasted, and he instructs his gardener to do so. Wait, says the gardener, not so fast. Let me try for one more year. Let me give it lots of TLC and see what happens. Okay, the owner concedes, though he knows full well that there's been plenty of time for this tree to bear fruit. Do what you like. I give you total control over the judgment of this fig tree. If it doesn't bear fruit next year, we'll do something different. Here, Jesus offers us a glimpse into the inner workings 
of the Trinity. God the Father is justified in destroying the tree. But God the Son is merciful, ready to give the tree one more chance. This is not a disagreement between competing deities, but an honest, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of situation taking place within the mind of the one God. God's instinct for mercy wins out over God's urge for justice. Why do evil things happen in the world? Today we hear a parable that may help us hold the question a little more gently. The gardener says, sir, let it alone for one more year. That Greek word, let it alone, it's the same imperative verb Jesus cries out from the cross, forgive. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive the fig tree for not bearing fruit. It doesn't know what it's doing. I'll take responsibility for it. All of humanity is stumbling around in the dark. And Jesus sees us in all our humanity because he shares humanity with us. He knows what it's like not to know. He sees how lost and anxious and defensive we feel. He has felt lost himself. God the Father has given him exclusive power to judge us. But at least for now, Jesus chooses not to do his job. For this, he will suffer alongside us. For this, he will die, just as we all must do. Only by taking responsibility for our failings can he show us just how much bigger the universe is, so much bigger than the death of anyone. It's not enough for our sense of justice, no. But that's because our whole world is still stuck in the middle, somewhere between sin and redemption, between death and new life. We're in the middle. But that day of resurrection... That day is promised, whatever it means. The day of justice is coming. And if Jesus is to be trusted, that day looks remarkably like mercy.